WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. It's the start of Black History Month, but the number of black voters showing up to the polls is falling here in Charlotte. Now there's a new effort to help voters get ahead, laying out the issues, the candidates and getting those voters to the ballot box. But first, a former North Carolina Republican Supreme Court justice filing a lawsuit targeting the state's new district maps. He's now going after his old party in a fight for what he calls fair elections. Joining us now is former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr. Judge, welcome back to Flashpoint. Nice to see you. Thanks. It's great to be on today. Yeah, it's not a secret that you were formerly a Republican. Now you're an independent. Uh, we, we've <laughs> talked about this before. Um, it's been in the papers. So what spurred you to go after these district lines in what some would say pretty late in the game? Well, actually, uh, what spurred this was a question asked by Justice Michael Morgan at the Harper Three rehearing oral arguments. And he asked the lawyer for the defendants, uh, are you saying that the citizens of North Carolina don't have a constitutional right to fair elections? And he really didn't get an answer, and the opinion certainly didn't uh, address that question. And so I kept thinking, well, do the citizens, in fact, have a right, or do they not have a right to fair elections? And that's really what, what drove this. And of course, it was uh, the cases in the context of the uh, districts that were redrawn, uh, but it, it really was less about going after the districts uh, and more about trying to get clarification of whether the, the citizens of North Carolina have a constitutional right to fair elections. Yeah, it comes down to sort of this, this idea of fair elections more than, than anything. Yeah. Uh, your complaint alleges that the maps just aren't fair for fair elections. And my understanding, this is the, the first time a suit has challenged the idea that these maps could violate a citizen's right to a constitutional fair election. I, is that your case? Yeah, that's that's correct. And let me make a distinction between what's called enumerated rights. There, those are rights specifically set out in the Constitution, and there are two election rights. Uh, one, the right to fair elections. Uh, I'm sorry, the the right to free elections and the right to frequent elections. Uh, the Constitution does not specifically address the right to fair elections, but there is a provision in our state constitution that says just because we've set out specific rights, it doesn't mean that the citizens don't retain other certain rights. And so our, our argument is that fair elections are the very foundation of our democracy. And, you know, what good's a free election if it's not a fair election? And in, in that context, the um, the districts that we challenged, uh, the, the argument is that the legislature essentially stacked the deck by moving uh, pockets of populations and precincts and aggregating them together to virtually uh, guarantee or ensure that uh, their candidate will win uh, the congressional election or the state house or state senate election. And so that's the the unfairness of it to the voters because it, it essentially is a preordained outcome or as close as you can get. Uh, and so uh, it's an unenumerated right to fair elections that we contend citizens have and that the violation is the stacking of the districts. And as I've, I've said, 
I don't see any difference between stuffing a ballot box and stuffing a district with uh, your voters to guarantee that uh, your side wins. Um, there are Democrats listed as plaintiffs in this case. Um, is this a partisan lawsuit? No, no. I mean, in the, in the context of the maps were drawn this time by Republican uh, supermajority in the legislature, uh, and, the, and Democrats obviously are the ones that are uh, complaining or concerned about, about the process. Uh, historically, both parties have been guilty of stacking the deck, and uh, long-term, <clears throat> I've, I've tried to emphasize uh, a favorable ruling uh, from from the court would really it would protect Republican in years to come when maybe the Democrats are in control of the uh, redistricting process. So we think it's a good government suit, not a not a partisan suit. Because because, you know, turnabout's fair play. And if Democrats have a chance, they probably do the same thing. That's what the case we've been making on, on this show now for, for quite some time. Let me ask you about the being just realistic here because you know the primaries are now just a few weeks away you're, you're targeting right. a handful of these districts you, you just laid them out with the election so close the primary so close honestly what do you expect to see happen here well i i think it will be difficult to get a final decision hopefully a a, a favorable decision that would impact the 2024 elections but <clears throat> the maps that are drawn will stay in place absent uh, a decision by the court telling the legislature to redraw them. Uh, those maps will stay in place through the next uh, census, which is 2030. And then, you know, we start all over with the, uh, with, with the process. So uh, even though it might not impact the elections this cycle, we would hope that a favorable decision would uh, impact the, the elections uh, in 26, 28, 30, it's hard to think about that, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, and frankly, if the court would say that citizens have a right to fair elections and you can't stack districts, I mean, that's, that's a ruling arguably forever. It's not like a quick fix or anything. So uh, we look at this as the opportunity to come as close as we're gonna be able to, to fix this problem of uh, legislatures, no matter who's in charge, uh, stacking districts in their favor. Yeah, the, the idea that this fair elections uh, idea could strike a, a stake in the heart of gerrymandering once and for all. Um, I mean, do you, yes. do you think that that's really realistic? I mean, beyond th this year, what's it gonna have to take, if it's not this lawsuit, then what else, to, to get more representative districts and listen, let's just, this is not just North Carolina. In, in New York, they do it just the other way, but they do it for Democrats. In California, they do it just the other way, but for Democrats. So what's going to have to happen to get, you know, some fair elections, some, some representative districts across the country, really? Well, I think it's difficult for people in power, no matter which party, to give up power. And the power to manipulate these districts um, is very tempting and it historically has been going on forever. So I think uh, absent some huge uh, change of heart by both political parties, I think it's going to take uh, either the courts in all of these particular states 
or arguably a reconsideration by the U.S. Supreme Court on the question. And I would note that the United States Bill of Rights contains an unenumerated uh, 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 language, and, and so it's not inconceivable that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court could at some point in time say that uh, the citizens of the United States have a right to fair elections and stacking the districts, uh, whether you're stacking them for Democrats or stacking them for Republicans or uh, or some other party, uh, is simply in violation of the Constitution. And if that happens, then we will have a fair uh, reapportionment and redistricting process. I say it every time we talk about this. It's not sexy. It's not salacious. <laughs> But honestly, redistricting, I mean, Judge, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most important issues of our time. And I worry not enough people pay attention to it because it is uh, admittedly so complicated. All right, Justice Bob Orr. Justice, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it as always. It's always a treat to be with you. Still to come on Flashpoint, a new project working to get black voters out to polls here in Charlotte. The push as early voting begins in less than two weeks. Welcome back to Flashpoint. The number of black voters heading to the polls here in Mecklenburg County is dropping. And now there's a new effort to help voters get ahead, informing them on the issues and the candidates on the ballot. And organizers say the key is early voting as Black History Month kicks off. Joining us now is Colette Forrest with the Black Voter Project. Colette, welcome back. A Thank freaking you. guest over the years on Flashpoint. Thank you. Always honored. And oh my God, the studio is like so hype. I know. We've been on Zoom for years, you know, with our interviews. So it's nice wow. to have you in person. Uh, first things first, what is the Black Voter Project and what's the motivation behind it? Thank you for asking. So the Charlotte Black Voter Project was birthed literally last year. We had a meeting, myself and community stakeholders met over at Attorney Ferguson's law office because we were becoming increasingly alarmed at the precipitous drop of black voters participating. In 2020, you had 246,000 black registrants. You actually had 154,000 vote. However, in 2020, you're still over 200,000 black voters and only 91,000 voted. And in 2023, you have over 200,000 black registrants in Mecklenburg County. We're just talking Mecklenburg County and only 71,000 black voters cast their ballot. Let me stop you. What do you see as the reason behind that drop? We have done focus groups and we have done surveys and we have scoured the county to find out. Black voters, black registered voters in Mecklenburg County are probably very similar to black registered voters throughout the nation and throughout the state of North Carolina. They don't feel like their vote matters. They feel like those that are being represented or being elected to represent do not represent their best interests. They're not looking out for their best interests. They're being ignored and their interests are not being looked after. So they've come to the conclusion, why should I vote? Because you've got to remember there is a generational shift that's occurring where a lot of the new registrants, especially 30 and under, they don't know about the struggle, about Rosa Parks, about Martin Luther yeah. King, about the Voting Rights Act, about John Lewis, about the Edmund Pettison Bridge. They know nothing about the history and the struggle of how our ancestors fought to get us the right to vote. Their bottom line, what are you doing for me? Yeah. What can you do for me? How can you make my life better? 
Uh, and, you know, we saw that fight play out here in the city of Charlotte over the decades as well, important to say. Um, knowing that the answer is a complicated one, what do we do to change that apathy? So last week um, on January the 24th, we had a huge um, first forum that we've ever had. We had over 200 individuals to come. We had students. We had students from West Charlotte. We had students from the Fletcher School. We had students from Providence Day. We had students from East Mech. We had students from Palace Aid. And they were able to ask questions of the candidates. And we had represented the gubernatorial candidates. We had represented the lieutenant governor candidates. We had represented the attorney general candidates. We had represented the Supreme Court candidates. We had represented represented the Court of Appeals candidates. So we were extraordinarily humbled by the array of candidates that we had represented. And one thing that we did different with the Charlotte Black Voter Project, we only focused on the races that had black candidates vying for their particular party affiliation and nomination. And we're nonpartisan. So for all of those races that I listed, all of which are council of state slate races, we had black candidates vying for their particular party nomination. Let's talk about voter ID that is now in place um, across the state of North Carolina. Now, I know county officials say there hasn't been much of a problem with it, but does it worry you? It does worry the Charlotte Black Voter Project. And to that end, we reached out to the Mecklenburg Board of Election and we had Mecklenburg Board of Election staff on site. And they had a voting machine where people could get familiar with how to vote because we don't want for anyone to be afraid or scared of the process and what it looks like. We wanted to make it intimate and familiar with voters. And we had the voter ID machine there so they could get voter IDs made. We we want at the Charlotte Black Voter Project to release all information to the public and remove all impediments for the public so there's no excuses. Remove any barriers out there. Um, you're encouraging folks to start early voting and that comes up uh, in just Thursday, a February the 15th right. and it runs until Saturday, March the 2nd. Now our second phase of the Charlotte Black Voter Project, we are canvassing. We are knocking on doors and black communities. We are going to start canvassing on February the 10th and our meetup place is Rita Memorial Baptist Church. We're nonpartisan, so we're going to have a sample ballot. We're going to ask simple questions like, are you aware that there's an upcoming election? Are you registered to vote? Do you know where you're going to vote? And what are your voting rights? Those are the simple fundamental questions that we're going to be asking and knocking on doors of black voters and black homes so we can get them engaged, encouraged, and entice them to come on, let's cast that ballot. For you, what does success look like? Success looks like getting above 30% of the registrants of black voters here in Mecklenburg County. Do you think you can do that? We're trying all we can. All we can do is try. Nothing beats a failure but a try. And we're going to try because we're not only canvassing on the 10th, we're canvassing the following Saturday. On the 17th, we're canvassing the following Saturday. On the 24th, and we're also going to couple with the black lawyers here in Charlotte and other organizations to have a voter protection session to teach individuals what to look like 
Do you know you're being harassed? Are you being intimidated by the polls? What are your resources? What are your tools if people are trying to intimidate you when you cast your vote and are trying to cast your ballot to vote? And if people want to get involved, they're more curious about your organization, how, they, how can they find out? Charlotte Black Voter Project at gmail.com. Okay, send an email there. Mm -hmm. All right. Colette Forrest, nice to have you on Flashpoint. Good to see you always. Always wonderful to have you. Right. Always wonderful to talk with you and be here. It's always nice to have you. Up next on Flashpoint, RWCNC Charlotte investigation continues. Police seizing so much money through a program, they don't quite know what to do with it. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Law enforcement across our area continues to cash in. Officers have seized tens of millions of dollars from people without ever having to actually charge them with a crime. As Nate Morbido learned, police have seized and kept so much money through the program that they haven't even spent it all yet. The Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department has by far the most money on hand. $8 million as of the latest reporting period. And the department tells us it's making plans to spend that money. Police departments have long defended the practice of asset forfeiture. They call it policing for profit. I don't think that's a a fair characterization as a way to disrupt large criminal enterprises and inject the cash they seize into protecting their communities. What better use of the bad guys resources that they've earned that way to put it back into law enforcement? A WCNC Charlotte investigation found local police departments have collected almost $21 million since 2018. Departments have used some of that money for criminal investigations and training, travel, awards and memorials, and to buy body cameras, generators, cars, a motorcycle, handguns, and a golf cart to patrol the greenways. They literally can't even spend that money. But public records show even after those expenses, their fund balances are still overflowing with a combined $16 million available as of the end of June. It seems to be a problem where you're bringing in more money than you can obviously even spend. Former prosecutor and criminal defense attorney Eric Rowell is on a crusade for more transparency and awareness of the practice. It's hard to ignore the abuses that take place. Well aware of cases. Just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. Including those we exposed. They just took my money without any consent. Where police seizures took money away from people who were never convicted of any crimes tied to the cash. It's just a matter of just constantly being vigilant with our local government to make sure that they're doing the right thing. In his town of Huntersville, the police department's most recent annual report shows a combined $765,000 in forfeited money remains on hand. I ask a lot of questions, and I've gotten comfortable doing that, and I do wish there were more people doing it. If I was elected, I would make sure... Rowell, a libertarian, has twice run for a board of commissioners seat unsuccessfully, despite his losses. I just have a few questions. Some of the town's elected leaders have raised concerns, too. We don't know where each dollar comes from. That's an issue for me, and that should be an issue for all of us. While the chief has said he's hopeful the town can better track how these cases start and finish in the future, the department has said it's unable to provide specifics of past cases, including how many resulted in actual criminal convictions. It has to be related to a crime. But has insisted all cases are tied to large-scale criminal operations. Get asked the question, how many people's rights do we violate? I would have to say zero. We've got no complaints. We've got no ethics violations. An HPD spokesperson told us the agency has yet to determine the allocation of its remaining money. The department declined an on-camera interview, just like the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. 
CMPD told us the agency has a plan to spend all of its $8 million beginning in July, after the council approves the next budget. But the police department has not yet told us specifically on what. We asked more than two weeks ago. They're bringing in a lot of money. Back in Huntersville, Raul remains skeptical of asset forfeiture in general and has no plans to stop asking questions anytime soon. We need to know whether or not our local law enforcement is involved in taking money or property from potentially in innocent individuals. We told you CMPD still has $8 million on hand. That's after the agency spent $1.3 million of its cash the prior year. One of its most recent purchases with this money? A new bomb truck. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back, folks. Come interact with us on Instagram, X, Facebook. And if there's something you want us to talk about on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. We'll see you back here next weekend. Thank you.